Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Yesterday, a few of us gathered in the nursery for the St. Paul's Book Club, and the book that we were discussing was titled Becoming, and the author was Michelle Obama. And it was really interesting for me having that discussion, trying not to go into that earlier phrase that I just read about thinking we're better than other people and having, holding other people in contempt. And I think that as an author and as a person, she was helpful to us in that she really didn't go there. And if anybody could, she could, in terms of thinking about your, um, your spouse and your, your work, almost it's as if it's trying to be erased from the history of our country. That's how it felt like in our conversation yesterday. And who wouldn't be angry at that? Um, and one of the times when she did speak the truth, um, she talked about a particular lawmaker uh, when Obama, her husband, was uh, first in office, and he very publicly said, our goal is to make Obama a one-term president. And rather than going to that, holding others in contempt, that kind of thing, I thought about, okay, now what would be an appropriate response to a statement like that? And I guess a, a response would be, well, with all due respect, I think your goal is to govern the country not, and to work with whoever is appointed to work with you. And that's a way of saying, you know, I disagree with you, but not uh, being as angry or as um, vicious as some of the language has been. In this particular Bible passage, over time, at least for me, when I have um, joking with someone, I'll say, oh, you Pharisee, and, and the, with the thinking that a Pharisee is not a good thing. And Pharisees at this time and place were the leaders of the organized religion, of the synagogues of the Hebrew people at the time. Some of them um, were probably more powerful than others. They were people with privilege, which we are people with privilege. And they were probably trying just to simply follow the rules and do what they thought was right. Um, I also, when they talked about in this, uh, when people are thinking they're righteous, one of the things that I realize that I do is I impose the word self in front of righteous in the today's words. That righteous for me often has become self-righteous. And there's nothing wrong with being righteous if it's done with humility and not with pride. But so often at times that righteousness feels like it's self-righteousness in the experience I have um, with other folks and probably with myself if I was to be honest about that when I use that term or think of myself in that positive way. So the Pharisee, there's, there's more to that person, and I think that we need to strip off all the things that we've put on that title over time. The title, other one, the other title that we probably have spent less time thinking about is the one of the tax collector, this other person in this story. And tax collectors would have been perceived as collaborators with the Roman Empire, people that were working with those in power, and um, in the prayer life, though, in this, in this um, story, in this parable, the tax collector is the one who's honest. The Pharisee is more talking about how wonderful he is rather than what he might be needing to pray for or pray about. And the thing about a tax collector, the thing about someone in that society that would have made that choice and would have walked down that road knowing that the rest of the society would be angry with him and that he would be ritually unclean in the eyes of the Hebrew uh, religion, what would make someone do that? 
Is he someone that's already been ostracized? Is he already on the margins of society? What about that has made him make that choice that he would be willing to, um, to suffer in, in the eyes of the rest of the people of that culture? Maybe simply putting meal on the table for your family. Think about all the things that people do in the world that they don't want to do if they don't have any money um, or don't have any way of making a living. Then the other thing about this particular um, story is that it's helpful to go back and remember that's not so much in our culture. We've been there and are still there from time to time. But this society was very much an honor and a shame culture. And the best example of that I have is years ago when David and I in 2006 were spending a month at the Tantur Institute outside of Bethlehem. One of the stories that we were told was that in the local Palestinian culture, they were looking for a secretary for the rector, for the person in charge. And they'd hired someone, and there was a big argument. The person that did the hiring was sort of doing it with a modern, more liberal perspective. And the feedback was that this woman that had been hired by this Palestinian uh, office manager they, they disagreed with him because she was from a bad family. And that no matter how talented you were, if you're from a bad family, that's it. End of story. And the, sto and the, the phrasing was, anybody can learn how to type, but you need to hire someone from a good family. So that honor-shame piece is very much there and was very much a part of this culture and very much a part of this story, even though it's not something that we would necessarily have today in our uh, resonating with that. And thinking about resonating, which character do we resonate with in this story? Are we the tax collector? Are we the Pharisee? Or are we looking at it from an outsider, not connecting to either one of those stories? And my, I would submit that there are times when we're both and that we can be in both places. And that's just who we are as imperfect human beings. Many years ago, I heard a prayer that has stuck with me for probably 30 years. And the person opened the It was in a political season. And it was a highly charged atmosphere. It was around Iran, no, um, Nicaraguan Contra Contra in the early 80s. And the church I was in, in their annual meeting, someone stood up and made a motion that the church take out a full-page ad in the Montpelier, Vermont newspaper denouncing Contra aid. And it was immediately seconded and immediately was called to a vote. So people had to raise their hands and like all the Republicans and Democrat diehards were exposed. Like who, and this was the state capitol. And we also had probably seven or eight people holding public office on both parties in that members of that congregation. So it was an incredibly charged atmosphere. And a lay person in that uh, congregation, later on in a prayer closing, she started that prayer with the phrase, oh God, rescue me from the arrogance of being right. And that has stayed with me forever because that's no matter how right we think we are, that that's important to not go there and start from there and already demonize or put down or make someone who is another holding another viewpoint uh, someone that is less than or so different from us that we can never agree on anything. 
And one of the things that, um, that David does when he works with General Synod is that there is all the resolutions that are brought in and, and for people to vote on, one of the things that when they review them is they have to be written in such a way that it doesn't call into question someone's Christian faith or faith at all if they do not agree with this resolution. And that's a really unique thing in politics, and I think that that's something that the national setting of the church tells us and teaches us very well. So think about this phrase, rescue me, O God, from the arrogance of being right. And I'll tell you a story where that was true for me. Um, many, many years ago, even before that, um, I was living in Chicago, and I was in seminary at McCormick Seminary in Hyde Park in the South Side neighborhood of Chicago. And uh, I was paired with a wonderful colleague named Donna Wells, who was also a student, and we were supposed to go to four different churches, go to worship, uh, take a bulletin, go through a checklist, how, how uh, e easy is it to follow? And it's like in Episcopal churches, do you have seven different books that you have to juggle and know what the story is and all that type of thing? Um, how are they welcoming to us and what was coffee hour like? And that's a whole other story. Um, but one of the churches that we went to was Fourth Presbyterian Church in downtown Chicago. And it was on the Miracle Mile, North Michigan Avenue, Water Tower Place, the elite center of the city. And it's a very large church, very gothic, imposing building. And Donna had just come from two years of working in New Orleans doing community organizing with ACORN. And I had just come from two years teaching in Ramallah in the West Bank of the Jordan, teaching the Palestinian boys in a Quaker school. So we were hot, we were young, we were radical, and we knew all the answers. So we came into the, in our jeans and backpacks, we were presentable, but we were casual. But we came into this particular church, walked up the steps into the main doors, and there were 12 men wearing morning coats and tails and white gloves. Those were the ushers and 12 women, I think, all wearing black dresses and pearls. The men were clearly in charge. They held the bulletins. The women did all the work and not the credit. We, we, we walked in there, and Donna, without missing a beat, walked up to the head usher, offered her his el her elbow, and said, we'll take a table by the window, please. <laughs> and I thought they were going to kick us out. They didn't. Um, but that was her way of dealing with that. And it was, you know, one of the most sort of, it wasn't arrogant or pompous, but it was clearly wealthy and privileged. So the setting is in a car driving up to Bellingham, and I'm sitting with David, and we're going to meet his parents for the first time. I told that story, and he got really quiet, and he said, you know, Tim, you might not choose to share that this, morning, this afternoon when we get there because... My grandfather was the senior minister of that church for 30 years, and my mother is still a member there. So if there's ever a time to say, thank you, Jesus, that was it. <laughs> Rescue me, O God, from the arrogance of being right. The other piece about that was at that same time, the other part of that story in going up to Bellingham was that in a few weeks I was to preach there. And it was the Sunday before that particular church was to vote on becoming open and affirming. 
voting on being LGBT. We didn't have Q yet. We didn't even have T yet. I think it was just LGB, I think is what it was at the time. But they were struggling, and it was a, 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 um, a significant piece for that church to be doing. David's parents were members of that church at that time. And, uh, and so it was very stressful to be preaching before that and before my in-laws or future in-laws. And also, it was back at the time, it was a different era. This was in the late 90s when, you know, those gay ministers in Seattle, it was like you were taking the exotic animal out of the zoo cage and letting them go into the general public and then bringing them back. Um, However, um, the sermon went well. The next week they voted. It was overwhelmingly positive. There were 300 votes in favor of open and affirming and 10 against. So it was an overwhelmingly positive thing. And then at the end of that day when I preached and people were, you know, there was a receiving line, you know, greeting the exotic animal from Seattle. There was a woman that came at the end of the line, a little bit bashful. She said to me, I feel a call to ministry, and I really, I'm, I'm struggling that is the United Church of Christ one that I could really be safe in this denomination as a lesbian woman? Well, I think so. And we talked a little bit. And yes, that person is now an ordained minister in our denomination, and that person is Ann Edson. That happened in that particular time. So as we close our time together and close the sermon together, the title on our bulletin is called Just Worship. And it's interesting because I can read that both ways. I can read that just worship, like justice worship, or focusing on all those things that are um, that we need to work in the world to make better and to heal and then I can also hear that as just worship when we're tired when we're exhausted when we're depressed and we come to church just to go through the motions until we can make it work for ourselves again that this community this institution is there in all times and all places and in the second just worship I found a really helpful um, uh, email uh, in the UCC devotions this week, and it's from Jennifer Brunell, from our former church member. It was about three days ago, and I'd like to close with her um, uh, statement. And, and hear this again, when you struggle with the arrogance of being right, here's a wonderful way of, con- of confronting that. How lovely is your home, O oh God. Your home is in all of creation. Your home is in the cold, tumbling rivers and the giant, mossy evergreens near where I live. It's in the eagle that soars just below the clouds and the salmon that swims upstream to spawn. Your home is in the parts of creation that are unfamiliar to me too, sandy deserts and windswept mesas and swampy bayous. Your home is wherever people gather. Your home is two wrinkled hands held at a worn kitchen table. And your home is in the imagination of children playing house under a tree during recess. It is in the congregation at worship, singing a new song for the first time. It's in the joyful tears at the baptism of a child and the sad goodbye at a sunny graveside. Gatherings of those who worship in ways that are unfamiliar to me, but precious to you, are your home too. Your home is in my heart. Your home is in the mess and the mistakes as well as the grace and the gratitude. Your home is in the inward strength and the outward struggle. Your home is in the doubts at night and the faith at the break of day. 
Your home is in all that makes me who I am and the parts of myself that are not yet known to me. Those are your home too. How lovely is your home, O God. O God, rescue me from the arrogance of being right. And Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and others and viewed others with contempt. May that not be so. Amen. <laughs>